0: The Forgotten Reformation, Episode 4, Sermons and Sermonizing, Part 1. Dear listener, welcome to The Forgotten Reformation, the podcast where we discuss the lesser known elements of Reformation history and theology. I'm JC. And I'm Zach. And today we're going to do something a little bit different than usual. Uh, we're going to do kind of a continuing set of segments. So hopefully we'll repeat this sort of model today and future episodes that we're calling sermons and sermonizing. So this was an idea Zach had where basically we're going to look at a couple different preachers from the past, ones whose sermons we've particularly enjoyed and benefited from, and hopefully we'll share you just a little bit about them, maybe share some good quotes, and sort of whet your appetite to dig into some of these old writings. Zach, what do you want to say?
1: Um, well, I'd like to, uh, I guess, say that you know, in in sermons and sermonizing, what we're hoping to do is to basically um, invite people to look at some of these older writers that are either back in print today or easily accessible online, and get them reading, you know, um, so that they can they can have a a, a greater idea, perhaps, of. Um, how the church preached historically that it would spurn them on in their sanctification, their walk with the Lord, and we hope that we can, in this uh, in in this episodes that'll come out every so often, we hope in these things that we can support and and further, um, I guess, a, a, a historical knowledge of preaching, um, people reading good, sound sermons devotionally, people learning to love, experimental preaching, and and yeah, that's what we hope for out of this.
0: And that was something that we had mentioned in episode two, um, just an encouragement to read sermons because they are heart-affecting, and they do stir up our love for the Lord, which we always need because we grow cold so easily. And it's actually interesting that in England, in um, the 1600s, the majority of published Christian works were collections of sermons. And now that makes up a very minute percentage of the Christian publishing industry. But we would do well to look to some of these sermons. I know I've been encouraged by a lot of what I've read, and it's, it's just so wonderful how well the words touch the heart in these old writers, and they're relevant just as if they had spoken them today.
1: That's right. That's uh, That's entirely right. And we had ought to, I think, be reading uh, more sermons. And the reason why I say this is because um, the sermon, in a sense, uh, from a, a God-fearing minister is an act of love. It's this minister who desires to go forth um, to the world and to uh, to preach his sermons. And the Lord, if he's called him to the ministry, he normally puts him in front of a congregation, and then his sermons are preached to his congregation, and they're, they're preached for the edification of those saints, for the calling of those who are un- unconverted to be converted, and for the sanctifying and edifying of the Lord's people. And therefore... I think we had ought to take uh, particular attention especially students of divinity to sermons of the past because it is certainly not harmful to uh look at um what has um how preaching was done in the past what has been done and the methods of men who who paled us in comparison <clears throat> so all that being said <clears throat> What we we can say is uh, today's episode is going to be really quite scattered. Now, in in kind of thinking about this, what I'm hoping we will do is we will come in and we will say, okay, well, we're going to have an episode dedicated to to Scottish preachers, an episode dedicated to the English Puritan preachers, an episode dedicated to uh, Northern American Presbyterians, Southern American Presbyterians, and we'll... Bounce over to the continent and look at at different streams of continental preaching that have been translated for us. That is our, I think, would be a lofty goal for us. and and so and also maybe to look at at under uh historic kind of currents of preaching so maybe puritan preaching and then uh, preaching at the time of the reformation seeing what we can dig up and bring to people then so this is a wide open door and today you're just going to get a few people and uh, we hope you enjoy it
0: you know (laughs) very much so so who do you want to kick us off with zach
1: so I'm actually to kind of tie us in with our last episode. I am just going to um, basically dive right into to Theodore's Fraylingheisen and why did I choose uh, Theodore's Fraylingheisen? Well, Theodore's Fraylingheisen is the forerunner of the Great Awakening, and Fraylingheisen being the forerunner of the Great Awakening—that's what he's called. In fact, the Book of Sermons that has been published by Frelling Eisen is is or is called Forerunner of the Great Awakening. But Freling Eisen, I think, has, has a unique place among American preachers um, in that he was here in North America. He served here. He died here. Of course he came from the Netherlands. But he would be a, a, a tremendous figure for men like the tenants, who would kind of spearhead the Great Awakening. Of course, George Whitfield writes very highly of Um So, what would I say about Frehlinghaisen's style of preaching? Frehlinghaisen is a very searching preacher. He does not uh, let anyone get away easy, so to speak. His sermons are not always um, the, the most, I suppose, comforting or, or assuring. He really, uh, as, as the German uh, preacher and theologian would say, Frederick Adolf Lamp, he, um, <clears throat> he strives to divide uh, the false professor from the true professor, and his reason for doing this was very much the environment he was in. But, all of that being said, um, Frehlinghuysen, we covered him in a whole episode. We, we talked a lot about Eisen. So, what am I going to do with Frehlinghuysen here really quickly is I am going to just read you a um, a quick uh, you know bit of Frailing Eisen's sermon. So from in in Fraling Eisen's sermons, the first sermon printed in that in that book, and it's available from Reformation Heritage Books, is Isaiah his sermon on Isaiah 66, verse 2, The Poor and Contrite in God's Temple, is the title of the sermon. I'll just briefly read this paragraph because we have sermon excerpts of Frailing Eisen in the episode that we did on Frailing Eisen, uh, but anyway, this is Frailing Eisen here, and I, I think this is it, it is sort of it's not the most perhaps experimental statement that Frailing Eisen made. It's not perhaps the most searching, but it gives you a general idea of the tenor of his preaching. And here it goes heartfelt disquietude and sadness on account of sins that have been committed, together with regret, not so much of the punishment as of the hatefulness of sin as sin. That sin is what has displeased so gracious a God and dishonored one who is good and holy. That sin is what has filled the sinner like Ezra with shame. Like the publican, the sinner dares not lift his eyes unto heaven. Tears run down from his eyes and saturate, as it were, his heart. It is the godly sorrow of which Paul speaks in Second Corinthians 7, verse 10, which proceeds from hatred of sin and love of God and virtue. This sorrow works a repentance unto salvation that is not to be repented of. Thus said the church, Mine eyes do fail with tears, my bowels are troubled. Lamentations, chapter 2 verse 11. So Frehlingheisen, obviously they're talking about what it is to know uh, your sins and to hate sin and to desire to to flee sin. And I think that's a good kind of idea of Frehlingheisen's preaching. It's very searching. It makes one desire to forsake the world. It makes one ask, do I really know the great truths of the Christian religion for myself? So that is uh, Frailing Eisen. If you want to know more, please listen to our episode. But I think now it's time for JC to introduce his figure with perhaps a little bit longer of a, of a biography.
0: Yeah, I'm going to start us off looking at the Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks. Uh, Thomas Brooks was born in 1608, died in 1680, and he ministered in England. And. He was a very renowned preacher. He was very eloquent and simple and practical and powerfully applied truth to the heart. Uh, He was so well known that he was uh, a preacher who was asked to speak to the House of Commons out of all the preachers in England though he did end up losing his preaching license in the Act of Uniformity in 1666, when the ministers would have been required to conform to all the practices of the Church of England, which Thomas Brooks, as a Puritan, was not able in his conscience to do, though he did continue to preach and uh, fulfill his calling from the Lord, um, even apart from that. Also interesting, he stayed in England during the plague to minister to those who were sick even when many other ministers were leaving. Uh, Spurgeon was a really big fan of Thomas Brooks. He compiled all his sayings into a little book called Something About Smooth Stones, and um, it's just a bunch of sayings from Thomas Brooks. Uh, His best-known work would be called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which is a book about how to deal with temptation, how to avoid temptation, how to overcome temptation by understanding the ways in which the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to uh, trick us and pull us down and uh, lead us astray. Kind of similar um, to a sort of screw tape letters idea, uh, which is C.S. Lewis's work, which is newer, but kind of a bit of the same idea there, though I would recommend Thomas Brooks um and i wanted to draw attention to one sermon of his that i read recently that was really really powerful to me it's called christ's love for us i'll link to it in the show notes i found it on the grace gems website and it's a really short sermon the whole thing's about a 10 minute read so it's a uh, it's a pretty accessible that way but In the first half of it, he just beautifully outlines the nature of Christ's love for us, how looking at Christ in his pre-incarnate state, looking at the covenant of redemption, Christ coming down, the incarnation, and just goes into depth with all these beautiful, glorious things about what Christ suffered for us, what he's done, what it meant, and how we ought to view it. But what I really appreciated was after he outlines all these things, he draws it back to an application, which is just simply that if we are able to look and meditate on how Christ has loved us and all that he has done for us, how then ought we to love the Lord Jesus Christ in return? So I'm just going to read uh, a couple quotes here that are from this application section. And I hope that you can see what we've been talking about when we've mentioned in previous episodes, um, experimental preaching, and as we talk about piety and what it means for our hearts to burn after the Lord. This is just a great example. So from the application of, in Thomas Brooks' sermon, Christ's love for us. See that you love the Lord Jesus Christ with a superlative love, with an overtopping love. There are none who have suffered so much for you as Christ. There are none that can suffer so much for you as Christ. The least measure of that wrath that Christ has sustained for you would have broke the hearts, necks, and backs of all created beings. Second quote O my friends, there is no love but a superlative love that is in any ways suitable to the transcendent sufferings of dear Jesus. O love him above your lusts, love him above your relations. Love him above the world. Love him above all your outward contentments and enjoyments. Yes, love him above your very lives. And lastly, certainly the more Christ has suffered for us, the more dear Christ should be unto us. The more bitter his sufferings have been for us, the more sweet his love should be to us, and the more eminent should our love to him. Oh let a suffering Christ lie nearest your hearts. Let him be your manna, your tree of life, your morning star. It is better to part with all than with this pearl of great price. Christ is that golden pipe through which the golden oil of salvation runs. And oh, how should this inflame our love to Christ? Oh, that our hearts were more affected with the sufferings of Christ. And I hope that that echoes the prayer of our hearts, that we know our coldness, that we know how much we lack in our love for Christ. And I just want to encourage us all, myself included, to just spend time meditating on the death of Christ, what he's done, his beauty, his holiness, his glory, his work of redemption, that we would be able to have our hearts set aflame with love for Jesus Christ. So there's a little taste of Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks.
1: Right. Yeah, Thomas Brooks I think is really a phenomenal uh, figure um, in in Puritanism, and you know we should thank God that we have had writings like that given to us that explain the Word and apply it to us um, so well. And JC, I appreciate those quotes, and I guess it's my turn to move on. So I'm going to. Introduce to you Christmas Evans. Now, Christmas Evans, to me is one of the most fascinating uh, figures. in uh, one of the most fascinating preachers that I've studied, I've read his memoirs. <clears throat> I have um, read a lot of his sermons, and I really have never loved um, preaching of someone as much as Christmas Evans. He's he's easily in my top five uh, favorites. So, um... Christmas Evans is is sort of an interesting fellow because he was the great one-eyed Baptist preacher of Wales, I I think is is one nickname for him. Christmas Evans uh, was born in 1766 on December the 25th. Now, at that time in Wales, it was the custom if you were born on the day of Christmas that if it was a male, he would bear the name Christmas. So Christmas Evans was so uh, christened with this name And he was born, again, I said uh, 1766. And um, Christmas Evans would have an incredibly interesting uh, Christian walk. And, And his conversion is incredibly interesting. But to summarize it, his father died when he was a very early age. And he grew up basically illiterate. He could not read, and he worked on, on farms doing odd jobs. Um, at the age of uh, somewhere between 17 or 18, he, became, uh, he came under the influence of a Presbyterian minister, David Davies, who was unorthodox. Uh, this is kind of sad, but uh, apparently David Davies did not have orthodox views of the deity of Christ. And basically what happened was is, is this was good and bad for Christmas Evans, shall we say. Um, in Davies, Christmas Evans would find the person that spurred him on to learn. And he would find the, the person that would uh, basically help him to do things like learn to read. Um. <clears throat> He began attending David Davies' church in a place called, it's a Welsh word, Le I know that there might be some Welsh listener out there who speaks Welsh and would tell me that I butchered that name. But um, anyways, uh, so he started going to church there. Now, David Davies was unorthodox, but... Christmas Evans, from his early youth, had a fear of of dying in an ungodly state. Um, And he he had some religious, I guess, he had a very tender conscience, perhaps would be the way to say it. I would love to do a whole episode on Christmas Evans, by the way. I'm trying to hit the high points. Anyway, uh, Christmas Evans was converted, not under the preaching of David Davies, um, but in the same area as David Davies Chapel, revival broke out. And um, it was the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist itinerant preachers who were actually coming and preaching in that area, and it would be those whom he would be converted under. Um, Evans, after his conversion, kind of left his worldliness and he separated himself from his worldly companions. Now, thanks to David Davies, albeit highly unorthodox and, uh, and you know, certainly not leading Christmas Evans down the right path, he did help Christmas Evans learn to read. So the first book that Christmas Evans bought was a copy of Bunyan's um, Pilgrim's Progress. And what they would do is Evans would uh, meet with young people from the church and they would practice reading with either copies of Pilgrim's Progress or the Bible uh, in, ba- in a barn by candlelight. And that's how Evans learned to read, actually. was He was taught to read the Bible in a barn by candlelight. He, could, he learned Welsh quickly and then later he would learn English. Um and so, what's interesting about Christmas Evans was um, Christmas Evans, it's it's really fascinating that here's a man who, who doesn't learn to read until he's probably about 20 years old. But later in life, he became proficient in Greek and Hebrew, and he became very familiar with the major theological works of the Puritans. So, Um, Christmas Evans, you know, he he kind of developed that way. He did not know to read, basically, until he was 20 years old. But by the time he was later in life, he could uh, read Greek and Hebrew. So that, I think, is really wonderful. And his views, uh, the, the minister who he sat under the Presbyterian, his views were unorthodox. But once Evans had learned to read, he helped him get into school for six months um, I believe with no fee. And this would be the only period of Evans' formal education. Um, <clears throat> Evans would be beaten up by his former friends. He lived quite an ungodly lifestyle. They were deeply upset. Um, and they would they would beat him up one night as he walked home, I, I think from school. And they would, I think, poke him in the eye with a stick or something, obviously quite forcefully. He would lose his eye. And that's from whence he became known as the Welsh One-Eyed Baptist Preacher. Um, now, the 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 saying of Christmas Evans was that his, his one good eye was so full of joy that he had lost one of his eyes in his youth, but the other was large and bright enough for two. So that, that came from a man describing Christmas Evans. Now, uh, Christmas Evans would be called to preach. Um, <clears throat> and Christmas Evans is, is very interesting in that he, the first sermons that he would preach, actually he, he stole from other ministers. Um, and, and the the way that he was found out is there was a farmer who, Christmas Evans was in a cottage meeting preaching a particular sermon, and there was a farmer who happened to own the same book of sermons that Evans had had gotten the sermon he was preaching from, and the farmer knew it. And, well, obviously um, Evans was uh, confronted. Now, um... <clears throat> The farmer was very generous to Evans because he, he basically said, you know, Evans, uh, Christmas Evans had, had stolen a sermon. It wasn't his sermon, but he had hoped that Evans would make a good preacher because he was quite a gifted man in public prayer. Um, and so I think this is, is kind of sad. And another interesting thing would happen to Christmas Evans, and at some point during this whole kind of Um, situation, he would come under the influence of the Sandemanians, who were um, basically people who believed in an academic ascent to knowledge, and he'd have to refute Sandemanianism, and I think also he came under the influence for a while of Unitarianism. So, Christmas Evans is an absolutely fascinating character. He's converted. He gets his eye basically jabbed out by a former friend of his with a stick. He starts preaching, and then his first sermons he he takes from... Uh, books of sermons and simply regurgitates them. He gets called out. He becomes a Sandemanian, and Sandemanians were considered heretical, or un- in some way influenced by Sandemanians, and then also, I believe, influenced by uh, Unitarians. And, and ultimately, he comes out a Baptist. And he comes out probably, uh, obviously he comes out Orthodox, but he comes out as the Bunyan of Wales. Uh, he comes out to be a really wonderful, wonderful preacher. Um, And I would like to read an excerpt from one of Christmas Evans' sermons on the fall and recovery of man. Now, Christmas Evans was called the Bunyan of Wales because Christmas Evans preached, very allegorically. He was always using these elaborate examples and allegories to explain gospel truths. And I think in Wales, uh, in in the environment that he was ministering in, this was particularly helpful because those um, around him uh, did not always understand the complex doctrines of the word of God, and therefore he made it very simple. So I will read to you this this absolutely magnificent quote. And he, he starts off with, I, I know not how to represent to you this glorious work better than by the following figure. Suppose a vast graveyard surrounded by a lofty wall with only one entrance, which is... <clears throat> which is by a massive iron gate and that is fast bolted. Within are thousands or millions of human beings of all ages and classes held by one epidemic of disease bending to the grave. The graves yawn to swallow them and they must all perish. There is no balm to relieve no physician there. Such is the condition of man as a sinner. All have sinned, and it is written, The soul that sinneth shall die. But while the unhappy race lay in that dismal prison, mercy came and stood at the gate, and wept over the melancholy scene, exclaiming, "Oh that I might enter! Oh that I would bind up their wounds! I would relieve their sorrows! I would save their souls!' An an embassy of angels commissioned from the high court of heaven to some other world paused at the sight, and heaven forgave that pause. Seeing mercy standing there, they cried, Mercy, canst thou not enter? Canst thou look upon the scene and not pity? Canst thou pity and not relieve? Mercy replied, I can see. And in her tears she added, I can pity, but I cannot relieve. Why canst thou not enter, inquired the heavenly host. "O," oh, said mercy, justice has barred the gate against me. I must not, and I cannot unbar it. At that moment, Justice himself appeared as if to watch the gate. The angels asked, Why wilt thou not suffer mercy to enter? He sternly replied, The law is broken, and that law must be honored. Die they, or Justice must. Then appeared a form among the angelic band, like unto the Son of God, addressing himself to Justice, and he said, What are thy demands. Justice replied, my demands are rigid. I have, I must have full atonement for sin. I must have their honor. And I must see something to be taken in their stead, to bear their guilt. And he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission justice said the son of god i accept thy terms on me be this wrong let mercy enter and stay at the carnival of death what pledge dost thou give me for the performance of these conditions my said said justice the son of god said my word my oath when wilt thou perform them 4,000 years hence on the hill of Calvary without the walls of Jerusalem, replied the Son of God. The bond was prepared and signed and sealed in the presence of attendant angels. Justice was satisfied, the gate was open and mercy entered, preaching salvation in the name of Jesus. The bond was committed to the patriarchs and the prophets. A long series of rites, ceremonies, sacrifices, and oblations was instituted to perpetuate the memory of that solemn deed. At the close of the 4,000th year, when Daniel's 70 weeks were accomplished, justice and mercy appeared upon the hill of Calvary. Where, said justice, is the Son of God? Behold him answered mercy at the foot of the hill. And there he came bearing his own cross, followed by his weeping church. Mercy retired and stood afar off from the scene. Jesus ascended the hill like a lamb for the sacrifice. Justice presented the dreadful bond, saying, This day on which this article must be canceled. The Redeemer took it. What did he do with it? Tear it into pieces and scatter it to the winds? No, he nailed it to his cross saying, It is finished. So, I think that was a bit long, but there you have an example of Christmas Evans' preaching style. Very allegorical. Very uh, simple. Very much um, trying to, I suppose, um explain very accurately the, the truth of these things to the people who were sitting under his ministry. And he was, I think, very, very gifted at that. Now, Christmas Evans also had a sarcastic nature about him, of what is in his, in his memoirs called the sarcastic rebukes of Christmas Evans. And, um, so Christmas Evans one time was dealing with an atheist and I'll read this out of his memoirs, but a shallow atheist was ridiculing the idea of God because as he alleged, he had no sensible evidence of his being. Mr. Evans answered, my friend, the mole in the meadow has never seen a king." Shall he therefore say there is no king? O thou atheistic mole, thou hast never traveled out of thy own narrow field, and if thou hadst, thy eyes would see... And wilt thou dare to say there is no God? Dost thou think all others are blind as thyself? All thou canst say is thou dost not see God, and thou dost not wish to see him. How dost thou know that the being that how dost thou know that the being of God is not so manifest on the other side of the river of death that no doubt is entertained concerning it throughout all the expanse of eternity? Can the can the earth mole say there is no grand lama in Tibet? Poor worm, thou must travel through the gates of death and fathom the bottomless pit and measure the land of destruction and scale the very heaven of heavens and surround all the borders of time and eternity before thou canst assure thyself there is no God. So there you have an example of... Um, Christmas Evans' sarcastic style. Another quicker example, I think, is one time two ministers were disputing over something of uh, ecclesia. It was a matter of ecclesiastical discipline, and one of them looked to Mister. Edward Evans and he said, "What do you think?" and and Christmas Evans replied, "I saw two bo- boys quarrelling over two snails." One of them insisted that his snail was the better, because it had horns, while the other one strenuously argued for the superiority of his, because it had none. The boys were very angry and vociferous, but the two snails were friends. And the debate ended when he said that. So, yeah, there you have it, a kind of an example of, of Christmas Evans, um... One who is, I think, really in the church today, to be emulated. And if there's one thing I can say about Christmas Evans' preaching style, it is that he, to me, absolutely is, is just wonderful. Like the way he allegorizes, allegorizes things and illustrates the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the work of redemption is absolutely phenomenal. And uh, whenever I think about the weight of of my sins and I read Christmas Evans, I always come away with the hope of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this is something that Mr. Evans himself particularly struggled with throughout his whole life. He, he struggled with assurance. And his preaching, I think, shows a, uh, a desire to deal tenderly with those of a tender heart. Christmas Evans wanted to obviously honor his master, And so, therefore, he never wanted to quench the smoking flax or or break the bruised reed.
0: Yeah, I was just agreeing as you were reading, you know, and thinking, with all this emphasis there's been lately about, you know, gospel-centered preaching and Christ-exalting preaching, if we want to regain and learn what Christ-centered preaching is like, we've got to read these old writers. We've got to read the Puritans and other reformers, because they wove Christ into everything. And as that quote you read was explicating you know just these the beauties of redemption the beauties of christ and we do well to learn from not just what they said about him but how they spoke uh with the warmth and uh, the beauty of the language and that would be a great benefit to the church today i believe
1: i think it would also be a great um Benefit, but I, I myself would be so terrified to preach as Christmas Evans preached. I can't imagine uh, making those allegories, you know. But he was absolutely tremendous. Um, he spoke upon that sacred work of redemption like no man that I have ever heard speak on it. Um, and I'm not saying that just because I have some bias for Christmas Evans. If you read his sermons, you will see one of, I think, the greatest preachers that has ever lived, and he was an uneducated Welsh Baptist, uh, but really a phenomenal man.
0: Um, JC, who do you have next? Um, I have one of my favorite sermonizers next, but that just reminded me when you said an un- uneducated Welsh Baptist reminded me of how highly people speak of John Bunyan's sermons, and he was a not formally trained English Baptist. And I remember John Owen said that he would trade all his learning to be able to preach like John Bunyan.
1: And I, I actually think that that's a, a good point. Is, um, and I, I really hate picking on the Baptist here for having the monopoly of uneducated ministers, um, but. Bunyan and Christmas Evans, I think, do teach us a valuable lesson. And that is, the call to the ministry is, is a call of God. And if the Lord has truly called a man to the ministry of the gospel, then the Lord will make it to where that man can preach, and that man will be sufficiently educated to rightly divide the word of truth. And I think when you look at Christmas Evans or or a John Bunyan, you do get that um, that vibe. You get that understanding. These men, no, they were not formally educated, in the sense that today the church seems to so uh, to demand uh, really. But they did have a gift. They they the Lord was with them. You see, and I think that's what we need to, to get into our heads. A minister in, in most North American Reformed churches typically has a bachelor's degree and then a master's of divinity degree, and then they're often encouraged to go get another higher-level master's degree called a THM, or to, to get a, a doctorate of ministry or even some a, a PhD. And while I think there's nothing really wrong with education. I think when it comes to the preaching of the Word, it would do us well to remember that no amount of education is going to give us good sermons. What gives us good sermons is the accompanying of God's spirit on it, and men whose hearts have been warmed by the fire of redemption working in their own lives. Men who love the gospel that they proclaim, and men who are dedicated to seeing souls saved, to seeing the Lord's people comforted, and to seeing the welfare of the church. And that's why I think that that perhaps we would do better to look at John Bunyan and Christmas Evans and and to say, really, you know, what can we learn from these two men? Because honestly, I've read a lot of highly educated men, and I'm not devaluing um, education. I think education is, is vitally important. I think that men like Turretin, Francis Turretin, were were great gifts to the church. I think that men who were very learned and could were great at and in the realm of polemics were great gifts to the church. Think of Samuel Rutherford, very gifted at polemics. But I also know that very few sermons I have read or heard have come anywhere near that of Christmas Evans. And therefore, I just I think we ought to be cautious and we ought to say, while yes, education is definitely a plus for a minister, we ought to think about how Christmas Evans um, preached with the accompanying power of the Spirit of God and men were converted under his preaching and he was not a learned man in a, in a strict sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I really appreciated that point of what you were saying, that it's not our learning and our particular exegesis and the science preachers have learned that makes them good preachers. It's the Spirit of God being upon them and being upon their preaching. And that um, was making me think just how much we ought to be praying for our ministers and praying that God would raise up more ministers of the gospel, um, because it's not— it's not a low calling. It's a high calling. Uh, as First as Timothy 3 says, it's a noble, a noble office to aspire to. And we ought to be always in prayer that God would continue to bless his church with gospel ministers uh, to be part of um, bringing God's blessing and God's shepherding to his people. And um, the importance of just that life that's steeped in truth, steeped in love for God is essential to the preaching of a minister. And that ties in so nicely with the next person I want to talk about, which is a Scottish Presbyterian named Robert Murray McShane. And he was known, above all things, as a man of piety and prayer. He was known for his godliness. He was known for his prayerfulness. When someone came to his church asking what was the secret to his preaching, uh, he brought him into his office, made him sit down in his chair, put his elbows on the desk, and said, raise your hands and now cry out to God. And that was the kind of man he was. That was always in prayer, always concerned that God would move in in the lives of his congregation. Uh, He was born in 1813, so he's a bit more of a modern guy compared to some others we've talked about, and he only lived till 29. Uh, he died in 1843 from, uh, Trifos, and he died while he was engaged, sadly. But, um, the impact he left, even in his short time of ministry, was profound, and over 7,000 people attended his funeral. He was such a beloved minister, and people spoke, um, warmly about him for many, many years. Uh, A couple interesting facts about him is that he was part of um, a missions group that went to Israel to to seek to see the Jews converted to God. So he did a little stint as a missionary there. And um, one of his actually most enduring legacies is that he created a Bible reading plan for his congregation because he wanted everyone to be reading the same passages of Scripture at the same time. And it's generally just called the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. And what what it does is it takes someone through the Old Testament once in a year and the New Testament and Psalms twice. And so it basically it splits it up also to say you're supposed to do one chapter in private worship in the morning, one chapter in family worship in the morning, then one chapter in family worship in the evening and one chapter of private worship in the evening. And um I've actually just started using that plan uh, starting this year, and I've, uh, I've enjoyed it so far. It feels really balanced and feels like you got to work at it, but it gets you into the Word in a really good way. So, Robert Murray McShane, I started reading some of his sermons probably a couple months ago, and um, what I wanted to go to specifically in his sermons, I just wanted to look at some quotes from two of his sermons on the Song of Solomon. And this was a topic that really changed in my thinking this year as I learned a bit more of the historic Reformed view of the book. And we've been really caught these days in thinking that the Song of Solomon is about um, teaching us principles for marriage and sexuality or courtship or any of these things, and we uh hold it up as having a really high earthly element that we can learn from but that is not the historic view of the text the historic view is that it's that it is the song of all songs and it is primarily meant to re- represent to us the spiritual truths of Christ and his church and so we don't look to the book for um for guidelines for our human relationships, because there'd be a lot of weird stuff in there, not to mention the fact that it's almost always the the bride who is going astray and the groom is seen as the model in the relationship, which is not the way it is in our human relationships.
1: It's super weird. Like, I'm just thinking about the first chapter, and it opens up with draw me, and we will run after thee. And it says, you know, thy name is like an ointment poured forth. An earthly bride. Like that that's a little strange for an earthly bride to say to her groom, you know. Um and and so therefore, yeah, I think it is. It is the song about Christ and his church and the interaction and communion. And it is it's it's lovely. And I actually would like to share a story. Um, if I could really quickly, on the Song of Solomon. There was um, Dutch people, I guess, are of the habit of reading the Bible every meal, and they go through um, about every year the whole scriptures because they read between three and four chapters a day as a family. And uh, one time there was a particular farm where a, a worldly man was delivering feed, and he showed up about midday, and the farmer came and, and said, you know, I can't help you offload right now. We're about to read the Bible, but you can come in and you can sit. And he was reading a chapter out of the Song of Solomon. And the And the feed truck driver, after he'd heard that chapter read, and after they'd prayed, he went to him and he said, you know, tell me about this. That was the most beautiful thing that I'd ever heard. And then then that man explained the gospel to him and later that man would become converted all by the reading of the Song of Solomon and a proper understanding of that, that book and how it relates to the gospel and how it relates to the communion of Christ with his church.
0: Wow, that's awesome. And yeah, I can say from my own experience and people I've talked to that have started to um, study and understand the spiritual meaning of the book is that it's such um, a benefit to the soul. It's such a beautiful way for the heart um, to express love for God and receive of his love for us. And here's just uh, three quick points that Robert Murray McShane, he said, it is agreed among the best interpreters of this book, first, that it consists not of one song, but of many songs two, that these songs are in a dramatic form, and three, that like the parables of Christ, they contain a spiritual meaning under the dress and ornaments of some poetical incident. So he likens them to parables that they are meant to teach us something. They're meant to teach us spiritual truths and spiritual lessons wrapped in this very relational, intimate, poetic language. But this is actually the first sermon he preached when he got called to his church, and um, for his opening text, he picked one from Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 2 to 8. He entitled it, The Voice of My Beloved. Um, But I love this intro he had here, talking about the relation of a Christian to the Song of Songs. He said, There is no book of the Bible which affords a better test of the depth of a man's Christianity than the Song of Solomon. First, if a man's religion be all in his head, a well-set form of doctrines, built like mason work, stone above stone, but exercising no influence upon his heart, this book cannot but offend him, for there are no stiff statements of doctrine here which his heartless religion may be built. Or, Second, if a man's religion be all in his fancy, if, like pliable in The Pilgrim's Progress, he be taken with the outward beauty of Christianity, if, like the seed sown upon the rocky ground, his religion is fixed only in the surface faculties of the mind, while the heart remains rocky and unmoved, though he will relish this book much more than the first man, still there is a mysterious breathing of intimate affection in it, which cannot but stumble and offend him. Third, but if a man's religion be heart religion, if he hath not only doctrines in his head, but love to Jesus in his heart, if he hath not only heard and read of the Lord Jesus, but hath felt his need of him, and been brought to cleave unto him as the chiefest among ten thousand, and the altogether lovely, then this book will be inestimably precious to his soul." For it contains the tenderest breathings of the believer's heart toward the Savior, and the tenderest breathings of the Savior's heart toward the believer. And that's really um, the beauty we find in the Song of Songs is just such tenderness. Tenderness of us towards God and tenderness of God towards us. And so here's a quote from later on in the sermon where I think you'll see this a bit more clearly. The soul sees Jesus to be so full a Savior, Giving to the sinner not only pardons, but overflowing immeasurable pardons. Giving not only righteousness, but a righteousness that is more than mortal. For it is all divine, giving not only the spirit, but pouring water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. The soul sees all this in Jesus and cannot but choose him and delight in him with a new and appropriate love, saying, My beloved is mine." And if any man ask, how darest thou sinful worm to call the divine savior thine? The answer is here, for I am his. He chose me from all eternity, else I would never have chosen him. He shed his blood for me, else I never would have shed a tear for him. He cried after me, else I never would have breathed after him. He sought after me, else I never would have sought after him. He hath loved me, Therefore, I love him. He hath chosen me. Therefore, I evermore choose him. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Wow. Isn't that a great quote? Yeah, wow. And this is what you get to partake of when you read these older sermons. And I'd recommend finding different sermons on the Song of Solomon from older preachers and just see... Um, the spiritual truth they uncover in this book. And like he said, it's this tender breathing from the Lord towards us. And in his other sermon, which actually takes up the previous two verses in the chapter, um, it's called, As the Lily Among Thorns. And he says the doctrine he raises in this text that he wants to teach is that the believer is unspeakably precious in the eyes of Christ And Christ is unspeakably precious in the eyes of the believer. And he just goes on to use the text to let us know how unspeakably precious the believer is to Christ, how Christ, because the believer has been purified in him, is seen as pure and blameless in his sight and is loved with an everlasting love that knows no bounds. And thus, Christ, this great redeeming God, must be so precious to us. And here's a quote from this sermon. He says, Some people are afraid of anything like joy in religion. They have none themselves, and they do not love to see it in others. Their religion is something like the stars, very high and very clear, but very cold. When they see tears of anxiety or tears of joy, they cry out, Enthusiasm! Enthusiasm! Well then, to the law and to the testimony. Quote, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. Is this enthusiasm? O Lord, evermore, give us this enthusiasm. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. If it be really in sitting under the shadow of Christ, let there be no bounds to your joy. O if God would but open your eyes and give you simple, childlike faith to look to Jesus, to sit under his shadow, then would songs of joy rise from all our dwellings. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. So I hope that whets your appetite to look into Robert Murray McShane. I'll give a link in the show notes to his collection of sermons, which is available online. So you can access all these sermons and more there.
1: Yeah, now, everything I have mentioned is available free online. JC, uh, Thomas Brooks quite a bit is available of him. Um, Christmas Evans, his memoirs and his sermons are available online online. Um, and of course, Robert Murray McShane. You know, I think it was Rabbi Duncan. Um, Rabbi Duncan, of course, was quite the interesting figure himself. But if memory serves me correctly, uh, of course, Robert Murray McShane died very young. And Rabbi Duncan, uh, one time, at, upon hearing a sermon of Robert Murray McShane, Rabbi Duncan said, you know, Robert Murray McShane, I can't understand really his preaching, because he never dwells on on the great things of, of history. He never, um, I suppose, really dives into the great mysteries of God. Uh, instead, Duncan leveled at him kind of this... Um, that his preaching was too simple. And then, of course, uh, the Lord took Robert Murray McShane and Rabbi Duncan realized that Robert Murray McShane was being prepared by God for heaven and that he should have not criticized him. And I always thought that was really uh, a fascinating tale. But Robert Murray McShane exemplifies a Christ-centered ministry. A love of God, a love of souls, and a desire to make the bridegroom of the church lovely and to glorify Him and to honor Him and to submit to Him. I think we ought to be incredibly thankful for Robert Murray McShane. But the last preacher I'm going to touch on is, is totally unknown. His book is free online, but uh, it's not available in print. Actually, I came across him was in Ian Murray's uh, Revival and Revivalism. Um, I really love history books, and uh, I love all books dealing with uh, Reformed theology. Sometimes, though, uh, getting through a, a good book like Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism is a bit difficult for me, because he has all these wonderful footnotes, and I will often read of someone in the footnotes and then I will immediately Google their name and I will try to go to archive.org, for example, and dig up works of theirs and get a feel for who the man was. And it's what happened with uh, Moses Hogue. Now, Moses Hogue was a Virginia Presbyterian. He's from Virginia. I'm from Virginia. So that was an endearing point. But, um... Moses Hogue was, I think, a very profound preacher. And he would have revivals of religion under his ministry in Virginia. And he would live from 1752 to 1820. He served as the sixth president of Hampden-Sydney College. And um, he would be a minister of, um, a couple Presbyterian churches. And, um, also he would be, I think, one of the the most profound yet unheard of, uh, Presbyterian ministers of, of, you know, of, of America, profound sermons. But, What I wanted to touch on with Moses Hogue was simply is a a tremendous sermon. It's his first sermon in his volume of sermons, and it's on ministerial piety. And basically, Moses Hogue was asked to deliver that sermon at the Synod of Virginia. It met in Lexington, Virginia in 1810. And um there was an absence of the moderator and Mr. Hogue was asked to deliver the sermon. He I don't think had a sermon prepared. So he starts off with the text from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 21. But I keep under my body and bring into subjection and bring it uh, rather but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I have preached the gospel others To others, I myself should be cast away. And Moses Hogue brilliantly speaks of the duty of ministers in their office. And this is one of the quotes from his sermon, and I'll just read it. Does a preacher feel sensibly for himself and the people committed to his care? Is he zealous in the discharge of ministerial duty? Does he address the immortal souls of whom he must give an account to God with earnestness and affection? This is well. I would to God we were all more engaged in this great work than we are. It must not, however, be forgotten that all this is within the reach of an unsanctified heart. Selfish as apostate man by nature is, it is impossible for any one who believes his Bible to be true not to feel deeply interested in the future state of his fellow men. Fearless of the future consequences of sin, as the children of men for the most part are, it is not uncommon for an impenitent transgressor to tremble under the apprehension of wrath that is to come. And under the united influence of these affections, it is certainly possible for a preacher to be, gay, uh, to be very much engaged both for himself and for his people. And yet we have reason to apprehend that some preachers consider zeal and affection with which their ministerial duties are performed as good evidence of genuine religion. A most dangerous error, certainly. We know well that it is far from being uncommon for men whose lives and whose doctrines are in direct opposition to both the doctrines and precepts of the Bible, to be very zealous in propagating their most pernicious sentiments. The history of the church in all ages since its first establishment affords abundant proof of this mortifying truth. So, Moses Hogue, he gets up there to his, to his brethren, and he basically is saying to them, Brethren, take your own souls into account. And just because you are a zealous shepherd of the people the Lord has placed under your care, that does not mean you truly know the Lord and you need to be very careful. And this type of searching preaching in our day is oft times lacking. And it gives us pause to think about our own lacks, our own need to examine ourselves and see whether we be in the faith. And he's ultimately just a tremendous preacher. So I would commend to you Moses Hoag, my fellow Virginian. And that's all I've got for tonight. I think that's all that JC has. So JC, if you would like to wrap it up.
0: Yeah, we'll uh, try to put links to as much of this stuff as we can find for free online in the show notes and on our Facebook page. Uh, go give it a like, The Forgotten Reformation. Uh, subscribe to our RSS feed or in iTunes. Uh, We're all over the place, and um, we thank you again for listening. If you haven't heard any of the first three episodes, we'd encourage you to go check them out, but more, we'd encourage you to spend your time reading some sermons instead. Uh, So we wish God's blessings on every one of you, and hope you turn in in the future, and we'll try to get another segment of sermons and sermonizing. Uh, You can look for that to, to come maybe in another four episodes or so. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. Good night, everyone. God bless.